Please join me for the prayer of illumination. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, that we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. The first scripture today is Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children and crossed the ford at Jabuk. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you, let you go until you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, yet my life is preserved. The sun rose up upon as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket, because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. Here's the end of the reading. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of these scriptures. Amen. You may be seated. Genesis offers us so many lessons. God chooses Abraham and Sarah and tells them that through them, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What well, turns out that one of the blessings we get from the descendants of Abraham and Sarah, and really from Abraham and Sarah themselves, but certainly from their descendants, is that these folks are chuckleheads. Now, that's a made-up word, right? Chucklehead. It's a, a pastor friend of mine uses that word instead of saying knucklehead, you know, or saying that they're kind of thick-headed or they're dopes or they're fools, but we know what that means, right? That they're chuckleheads. So one of the blessings we receive from Genesis is that we learn that people are chuckleheads and God uses them anyway. God uses people in their messiness to continue God's work in the world. And that's good news because we too are often chuckleheads and we too hope to be used by God to continue God's work in the world. Amen? You want to be part of God's work in the world, right? Yes. Amen. Our text today is about Jacob, the grandson of Abraham and Sarah. His parents are Isaac and Rebekah, and he has a twin brother, older by only moments, whose name is Esau. Jacob is an especially fascinating chucklehead. Before he and his twin brother are born, God tells their mother, two nations are in your womb and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. Well, that's not how the world works, is it? Before the time of Jacob, even the eldest child, the eldest son was especially privileged, was got special benefits. But in the Bible, we see many examples of God preferring the younger over the elder. That's, that's true all the way back to the first siblings, to Cain and Abel, right? God prefers Abel's offering over Cain's, even though Abel is the younger brother. 
This is a signal to us that God has a different way of doing things. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, brothers and sisters, don't take this personally, you guys, but this is what Paul says. Brothers and sisters, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world to make a difference. In other words, God likes to work with chuckleheads who don't seem to have all that much going for them. This is good news for us, all right? These people struggle, and yet God brings blessing from their struggle. When Jacob was born, he was holding on to Esau's heel. Genesis says he was born gripping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. The Hebrew name Jacob is Yaakov, and it ends in the word heel. And one connotation of this is that Jacob is born pulling his brother's leg. If someone is trying to pull your leg, they're trying to trick you, right? Jacob was labeled a trickster at birth. And Genesis tells us that as he was growing up, he kind of proved this to be true, right? He didn't do what, he didn't, he didn't act like Esau. He didn't do the things that men did. He didn't go out and hunt. He didn't go out and farm. He stayed in the tents and he, he loved to cook. And loving to cook came in handy because one day uh, his brother Esau came in from the field feeling especially famished. And Jacob wouldn't give him any of the stew until Esau gave him his birthright. Jacob convinced Esau to sell his birthright for a bowl of stew. In other words, Jacob said, I should be the one who's treated like the firstborn. I should be the one who gets the privileges of being the oldest child. You're going to have to give that to me if you want to eat today. And then later, when Isaac, their father, was nearing the end of his life, Jacob was coached and encouraged by their mother, Rebecca, to dress up like Esau and to trick Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing that was intended for Esau, for the oldest son. This blessing isn't just an off-the-cuff piece of encouragement like, God bless you, my son. No, this, is, this blessing is a word of great power. It, it conveyed something potent as if Isaac was passing on his own vitality, as if he was passing on a piece of his soul to his son. And everyone knew that Isaac intended to pass that on to Esau. But Isaac didn't care. He tricked Isaac and took it for himself. When Esau found out, he threatened to kill Jacob for his deceit, for his trickery. So Jacob fled to their mother's brother's home. And it turned out that Uncle Laban was just as big a trickster, if not a bigger one, than Jacob. Laban even tricks Jacob into marrying Leah instead of Rachel and then marrying them both. And Jacob is there and he's working for Laban. And then one day, about 20 years in, it's as if Jacob has just had enough, enough of living in exile, enough of being away from home, enough of being away from the land that he believes he is entitled to. God had promised Abraham a place in this world and Abraham passed that promise on to Isaac and Isaac passed it to Jacob. 
He was tricked into doing it, but he did it. He passed it on to Jacob. So Jacob believed he was entitled to claim it. So Jacob packed up his family and they left Laban's land. They actually snuck away in the darkness of night. And on the night before Jacob was finally going to confront the brother that he had tricked out of so much, out of too much really, Jacob found himself utterly alone. He had done a strange thing. Perhaps it was another trick. He had taken his wives and his children and they had crossed the river Jabbok, which, which eventually flows into the river Jordan, right? And he, he takes them across the river to the Esau side of the river and he leaves them there and then he goes back. <laughs> he puts his family between himself and the brother he expects to be angry with him. For a biblical hero, we might expect something different, something better, right? We might expect him to put himself in harm's way to protect his family. But Jacob, he does the opposite. He puts his family in harm's way to protect himself. And once he's alone, Jacob is visited by a man who wrestles with him. The night stretches on. And by the time that long night is over, Jacob realizes He hasn't been wrestling with a man. He has been wrestling with God. And this is where it gets really, really interesting. Now, maybe you know what it's like to wrestle with God. Maybe you've had some tough talks with God. Maybe you've been bold enough or courageous enough or faithful enough to ask God, why? Or why now? Or why not? Ellie Wiesel is an amazing 20th century example of someone who wrestled with God and faith. Ellie is short for Eliezer. Ellie Wiesel was born on September 30th, 1928 in the mountains of Romania. His father owned a grocery store. He and his three sisters kept their mother busy, and they were a faithful Jewish family living in a tight, in a close-knit, tight-knit Jewish community. When Ellie was 12 years old, the Nazis invaded his town and began persecuting and restricting Jewish citizens. And when he was 16, Elie Wiesel and his entire family were deported to Auschwitz, not just a concentration camp, but a death camp, a place the Nazis created for the sole purpose of killing Jews and other quote unquote undesirables. Historians estimate that more than a million people A million people were executed at Auschwitz. And of course, we know that at least six million Jews, not to mention hundreds of thousands of other people, were killed in the Holocaust. Ellie and his father were separated from his mother and his sisters. On the first night in the camp, he and his father were put in a line and they were marched toward the crematorium. In his book, Night, he writes this. Not far from us, flames, huge flames were rising from a ditch. Something was being burned there. A truck drew close and unloaded its cargo. Small children, babies. Yes, I did see this with my own eyes. Children thrown into the flames. Is it any wonder that ever since then sleep tends to elude me? So that was where we were going. A little farther on, there was another larger pit for adults. I pinched myself. Was I still alive? Was I awake? Was it possible that men, women, and children were being burned and that the world kept silent? 
no, this could not be real. Everybody around us was weeping. Someone began to recite the Jewish prayer for the dead. May God's name be celebrated and sanctified, whispered my father. For the first time, I felt anger rising within me. Why should I sanctify God's name? The almighty, the eternal and terrible master of the universe chose to be silent now. What was there to thank God for? When Ellie and his father were only steps, just two steps between them and the pit, a soldier ordered them to suddenly turn left and they were herded into the barracks, spared from death, but sentenced to a terrible existence. He hauled stone for 12 hours a day, survived on a cup of broth or less, and slept almost naked in freezing temperatures without so much as a blanket. Elie Wiesel would go on to survive Auschwitz. He would survive that death camp, but only after his father was executed in front of him and after he saw countless other people robbed of their humanity, beaten, starved, and murdered. He said that what he experienced in that terrible place murdered his dreams, murdered his God and his soul, and turned his dreams to ashes. When others prayed to God or spoke of God's mysterious ways or said that God would redeem them, he couldn't pray. For a time, he said he could relate to Job. He could think about, about Job and all of the terrible things that happened to Job, and he could relate to that. But then he got to the point where he could no longer do even that. He got to a point where he couldn't plead to God. He couldn't even utter a lament. At one point, he came at God hard. He says he accused God of absence, neglect, and abandonment. He told God that he rejected God's silence. But when he ended the conversation, he realized he was utterly alone. He was alone in a world without God, without humanity, without love or mercy. He said, I was nothing but ashes now. Deep inside me, I felt a great void opening. Elie Wiesel, like Jacob, wrestled with God. For Jacob, the wrestling match came after he put his family between himself and the brother he expected to be angry. He was alone trying to collect himself, perhaps thinking through what would happen the next day, making plans for this meetup with his brother. But imagine the scene, right? Out of the deep darkness of the night, a stranger leaps at him and they fall to the ground and they're lashing out at each other through the darkness. It had to be terrible. It had to be terrible for Jacob to not see the face of who he was fighting with, to be able to feel his accuser's strength, his attacker's strength, the strength of more than a man. They struggled all night in silence until just before dawn when Jacob thought he might have done it. He might have won until, bam, a hit at the hip that took him out. But Jacob didn't let go. In this wrestling match between Jacob and God, two interesting things happen. First, it's God who says, let me go. God, not Jacob, is the one who says, let go of me. I don't know about you, but I think God has said that to me too. I've made the mistake of limiting God to my own preconceived notions and my own easy explanations. 
And when I try to put God into a box, I'm like Jacob stubbornly holding on as if to say, I need you to be within my grip. And in those moments, I can hear God graciously telling me, let go. Let go of what I think I need God to be. Just let God be God. Trust God to be God. God tells Jacob, let go of me. And Jacob responds, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Well, we've known ever since the day that Jacob tricked Isaac out of Esau's blessing. Or maybe we've known since the day that Isaac tricked Esau out of his birthright. Or maybe we've known ever since Jacob was born pulling his brother's leg. But we have known for a while that Jacob will stop at nothing to get a blessing. And now Jacob finds himself wrestling with God. And even though he's lost the fight, he won't let go until God gives him a blessing. And this is when the second interesting thing happens. Because God asked Jacob, what is your name? Now, I don't think for a second that God didn't know Jacob's name. I don't think that God wasn't sure who who the other wrestler was in this match. God gives Jacob a chance to state who he is, Jacob, the deceiver. And God says, actually, that's not who you are. In my imagination, I can see the conversation unfold with Jacob still holding on. God says, what's your name? And he says, Jacob. And God says, you know, that means the deceiver, right? And Jacob says, yes, I didn't choose it, but I have certainly lived up to it. And God says, well, That isn't who you are anymore. You have a new identity. From now on, you are Israel. And Jacob says, Israel? And God says, yes, you have wrestled. You have struggled with God and lived to tell about it. That is your new identity. In response to Jacob's refusal to let go, God doesn't give up on Jacob or strike him down or abandon him. No, God changes Jacob's name to reflect how he held on when things got tough. If Jacob had let go, he might have remained the deceiver. But instead, God redefines Jacob's identity and his life. The man Israel is not formed by success or shrewdness or even an allocation of land. He is defined by struggling with God. Walter Brueggemann says, when daylight comes, the stranger is gone, and so is Jacob. There only remains Israel. What remains is the same man, but now decisively changed. Jacob asked for a blessing, and he got a new identity, a new understanding of what it was that mattered about him. I think in some ways that's true for Elie Wiesel, too. Just days before Auschwitz was liberated by Russian soldiers, rumors started to spread that someone was coming to save them. The prisoners had heard rumors like this before, so they were careful not to get too optimistic. As Wiesel was talking to someone about it in the bunk room in their barracks, another prisoner said, don't be deluded, Ellie. Hitler has made it clear that he will annihilate all of us, all Jews. And Wiesel said he exploded. He said, what do you care what Hitler said? Do you think he's some kind of a prophet or something? And the man stared back at him and he said, Ellie, I have more faith in Hitler than in anyone else. 
He alone has kept his promises, all his terrible promises to the Jewish people. In other words, it seemed to them that that God had not kept God's promises, but Hitler's threats had all come to be. Well, the rumors were true this time, and the Russian army did, in fact, free everyone who was imprisoned at Auschwitz on January 27, 1945. And from the time the Nazis were defeated and Elie Wiesel was released from Auschwitz, he committed himself to telling the story of what he had seen and survived. And he said he did that for the sake of those who couldn't tell their story, for the sake of those who had not survived. In 1986, Elie Wiesel was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. The Nobel Committee said that they chose him for being a messenger to humanity, his message one of peace atonement, and dignity. In his acceptance speech, more than 40 years after he was freed from Auschwitz, he spoke of his faith, his faith that was so tested and stretched and perhaps even erased for a time. He said, I have faith, faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even faith in God's creation. Without this faith, no action would be possible, and action is the only remedy to indifference, the most insidious danger of all. We know that every moment is a moment of grace, every hour an offering. Do you see? Elie Wiesel came to the conclusion that every moment is a moment of God's grace only after wrestling with God over the truly atrocious things he saw and experienced. We like to imagine that meeting with God leads to reconciliation and forgiveness and healing. And we talk about it as if it's all, you know, butterflies and rainbows. When the reality is that life is a struggle. Faith is a struggle. Jacob, he limped for the rest of his life. His struggle with God marked him forever. And maybe that's true for you too. Maybe you're walking with a spiritual limp. Maybe you've wrestled with God and you've tried to hold on too tightly and now your faith is a little banged up. Maybe you're walking with a spiritual limp. Walking with a limp, literal or metaphorical, does not mean you are not blessed, right? Amen? Amen. Jacob got the blessing that he so desperately wanted, but it didn't make his life easy. After this happens, his beloved wife, Rachel, dies, giving birth to his 12th son. And then his favorite son, Joseph, is is sold and lost to him for decades. And then a famine hits and his entire family has to relocate to a foreign place. His descendants will be enslaved for 400 years. You see, being blessed doesn't mean that you have an easy life. So if right now your life is not all that easy, don't despair. God is still with you. God's blessing is still upon you. We've seen it in Genesis and we will see it again and again as we journey through the Bible together this year. God has a unique way of doing things. God knows we're just a bunch of chuckleheads. Like the Apostle Paul says, brothers and sisters, not many of you were wise or powerful or well-born, but God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is weak in the world. God chose what is low and despised in the world to make a difference. 
You may be flawed and broken. You may be limping through life, but know this, God has a blessing for you. God used the hardest parts of Jacob's life. God used the hardest part of Elie Wiesel's life. And if you allow God in, God will use the hard parts of your life too, so that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Amen.